Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to another episode of the Third Reich History Podcast. Much delayed, though it may have been. I uh, saw a sign the other day that said, Deep summer is when laziness meets respectability. This has not been the case for Chris and I, much as we may have hoped. We both had our noses down focusing on our own research during that sort of window of time between when classes end and you have a chance to focus on something else and when you start to need to think about what's going to be happening in the fall and what the next steps are going to be to actually get some writing done for a change. So he has been working hard at finishing up his dissertation. We've been firing stuff back and forth to get it up to snuff, and I am now... Well, I suppose what it works out to is about 48% done, not to be too exact, the finished manuscript for my new book on the enforcement practices of the Gestapo in the Rhineland. And so that is nearing completion as well. In the meantime, I have also been looking at what grants are coming down the line and immersing myself in a couple books applying for postdoctorate positions, looking to see who's going to be hiring, and if they're not going to be hiring me, who I should be taking my ideas to, hat in hand, of course, for a bit of funding. So that means I've been spending a lot of time digging through what can be found in the archives once more. Part of the whole grant process is that you take what you've done and you put together a proposal, but then you also have to follow it up with a bibliography to prove to these people that yes, if they give you your money, you do in fact know where the sources are that are going to let you write what you say you're going to write. I thought since you guys have been so patient while we've been toiling away on our own stuff, that I would put together a little something about what it is like to be on the other side of a history book. All of that background work in the archives that goes into digging out the interesting documents, finding those gems that give you those insights, and really the fun side of the research, which is digging through the archives and just finding things. So there's been a few places that I've been over the years as a historian at this point, and I thought I would share some of the stories about how they came to be the repositories of the files that you can find there and what some of the buried treasures are. Well, I figured I'd start off with my home away from home whenever I'm in Germany, and that is the North Rhine-Westphalian State Archive in Duisburg. Living and working in the Rhineland is really great, I have to say, because on the one hand, you're in the middle of what is this massive industrial sprawl of these old, this old metropolitan area that used to be really the, the strategic industrial heartland of Germany. It still is to this day, but 
the decline of coal as an energy source and steel uh, not not being produced for as much as it used to be. It is something of a, a shade of its former glory, but you have this. You still have this massive singular urban stretch that runs from uh, more or less Dusseldorf, the bottom portion. There's a break that then you don't reach anything till Cologne again. But you ha you start in Dusseldorf in the south, and it it wraps all the way up through these this chain of suburban communities into Duisburg which is nestled at the corner where the Rhine cuts eastward into the Ruhr, breaks off there. And then if you if you follow that branch, then you, you move through Essen and Mulheim and eventually end up, you head far enough east, you end up at Dortmund. And there's all this interesting old infrastructure that you can explore in the area because of the, the old industrial connections. Uh, there's a latticework of canals that cuts up the entire area that you can still explore. A lot of them aren't in use anymore because they were put in in the 1900s to connect all the mines in the region to the factories. Uh, it was something like two-thirds or three-quarters of uh, energy production in Germany came out of the Rhineland in this specific district. And it was more than half of steel and, tra uh, and, and goods traffic that came into the country passed through the rail networks in the area. So it was a massive population in this strategically significant central location. And because of that, you have some of the most interesting examples of industrial architecture in Germany clustered in this small little area. It's actually part of, uh, I believe it's a UNESCO trail uh, or perhaps North Rhine-Westphalia has its own trail. It's both or both. Yeah, so it's both. Uh, UNESCO has heritage sites and the state of North Rhine-Westphalia has also set up its own little scenic trail where you, it takes you around what's called the Industrial Heritage Trail. And one of the more famous examples is the Zollverein Zecke, which is, uh, well, it was a company, but the Zollverein is the, uh, the customs union and uh, shaft number 12 at one of their old one of their old coal mines it's hard to explain the scale of one of these complexes if you've never seen something like it before it really gives you an appreciation for sort of you know the triumph of human ingenuity and engineering and all those things if you can leave aside the environmental impacts for a moment but they are they're truly magnificent accomplishments in engineering and what's interesting about a lot of the locations in the Rhineland that were built up in the late 1800s and then expanded in, in the 1920s and 1930s, the area became a location for a lot of new architectural experiments with the Bauhaus movement to try and create these machines for living or livable workspaces. So Shaft 12 is one of the more striking examples of this particular architectural style in addition to being of, on a breathtaking scale. And one of the more iconic parts of it is the actual Minehead elevator that stands in the, this symmetrical approach as you walk into the facility, you walk under the large, you, you walk under the flywheels of the massive elevator and it frames the tower of the boiler house. And the boiler house has the, these sort of vertical columns of glass that run all the way from the base to the very roof. So when the sun hits them at the right angle, it looks like you've got these sort of, and it reflects off them, you, you've got these kind of shafts of light shooting out of the earth that are shot through this, this brick edifice of this huge symmetrical building that is all framed underneath this giant iron tower. So 
one can only imagine what that would look like when the place was actually in production on top of everything. And then there is also the it's also connected to the whole the whole canal network because everything was brought in and out of these factories and uh, or directly from this mine to the factories or the coking facilities as part of just kind of the circulation of all of the raw materials around the area that went into the steel industry. And they actually will close down the canal during the wintertime and you can go skating on it. And I've, I believe I have heard, though I have not been myself, that they've actually turned part of the old uh, part of the old facility into a rather posh dining area. So you can go and you can have you can you can dine in an old industrial facility, which is actually a much more attractive option than it, it may sound at first blush. So there are the remnants of all these massive industrial installations and the infrastructure that's been associated with the area. A.G. Baer, Rheinmetall Borsig, the Fritz Thyssen Company, all of the major manufacturers in German industry, all the big names that you would recognize, were all situated in the Rhineland and they were all bound together through the infrastructure in the area. And all those remnants are there that you can explore. And it's also makes for the nice, uh, the, the usual Rhineland pastime of going down to the Rhine and uh, just putting out a blanket and sitting back with a beer and watching the, the Rhine barges go up and down the river. There are these nice little hotels, sort of uh, drinking establishments that you can hop on, hop off and move up and down the river or bike in between. And everything along the river is these sort of like reclaimed dikeland areas or floodplains that uh, if they're not under cultivation, and even if they are under cultivation, have these these sort of dikes that you can walk along along the edges of the river and and move through the fields out to these small little guest houses where you can then sit down in a relatively secluded area surrounded in a field, you know, on a nice sunny day. It's a great way to spend your weekend, right? And watch the ships move up and down the river. So there's something, there's a few hundred kilometers of, of, of bike trail that you can explore up and down the Rhine as well. So it's really, if it's going to be a place that you're going to go and you're going to be stuck doing research in an archive during the day, right? Uh, there's plenty to do once you get out to, to enjoy. And it is absolutely beautiful. Then that's just the western and the central part of the area. If you move to the east, you get into the Bergische Land which is where a lot of the the ores that went into the steel industry were extracted from these small mining communities kind of nestled into the the valleys that run between the the foothills uh in the so southern and eastern parts of the district so it's it's absolutely beautiful and then when you get downtown to the big cities like Essen and places like that you can see the late 19th early 20th century architecture in the infrastructure that was built to allow workers to move from the suburbs to the factories where they were working. There are these amazing natural stone arches girded with iron I-beams that kind of reflect the whole, you know, steel and steel and industry and, uh, and mining character of the region that are built into the old railway bridges that the public transit would take from the eastern suburban portions into the major production facilities in, in in town so it's it's really it's a fun place to just walk around and, and look and see what you can see and discover it, it is a beautiful part of the country and then the moment you get out of the city you're in these rural districts and you you know you're biking through big fields of canola plants and then in the background there will be the reminder of the industrial character of the area with uh 
you know, fields of fields of canola with a, a nuclear plant just sort of sitting there in the background. So it's 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 definitely unique uh, in its character and in a place that I've very much come to feel at home at. So the actual archive reflects some of this. It, it's becoming some of something of a trend in Germany to actually repurpose an old industrial building or an old industrial warehouse or customs clearinghouse to be the magazines for an archive. It makes sense because you've got a huge building that was in some way climate controlled at some point and uh, is large and intended to hold lots and lots of stuff. So all you need to go, all you need to do is go in and renovate it and change your climate control so that it can actually hold the papers and you get to keep one of these amazing old buildings. So the actual state archive is now housed in an old grain elevator, which actually serves as the main magazine for all the files that you can get on site at the, at the state archive there. So it's, at, I think it's also part of the Silverine group, but either way, it's an old grain elevator that's, uh, that's, that was renovated as part of the Duisburg Harbor project. Now the actual state archive was founded, I think in 1832. Uh, well, way back in the day, part of sort of the professionalization and, you know, actually creating a state archive for the state of Prussia. Uh, so it served as the main repository for official documents from the Upper Rhine province. And then later on became, after the war, the state archive for the newly broken off state of North Rhine-Westphalia as well as the dumping ground for all of the party and association papers that were kept in the area from 1970 onwards. The first time that I went there, it was still housed in a building on Maurerstrasse in Dusseldorf before the move to the grain elevator in Duisburg. And that was really neat, not for the building that it was in so much as the one that it was next door to, because it looked like somebody had turned the whole thing inside out. It was built out of steel, I think, or iron. So it had all rusted over and had turned brown. But all of the air ducting for the insides of the building were on the outside. So it looked like, you know, you could see the circulation system for the entire building. Interesting things, buildings like that are all over the, the area. Anyway, after the State Archive moved from Maurerstrasse over to Duisburg, I don't know what, what actual address is now. Either way, it's a great walk to work in the morning. You come up along the canals in Duisburg, and actually as part of the, the harbor renewal project, they've put out a lot of the old cranes that used to be used for loading and unloading the barges. So you go up past what used to be an old city wall, and then you come over this kind of drawbridge and then you go underneath these giant old cranes that are that range from like back through the 1930s up to the more modern ones of the 70s. So you have literally the industrial heritage of the area on display as you're coming into the archive. The apartment that I stayed in the last time that I went on research there was actually situated in an interesting overlapping crossroads. Humble graduate student that I was on a budget, living in a in a shared apartment, uh, getting a room from somebody through a, a Wohngemeinschaft.de. Uh, throw that plug in there. If you ever need to rent a room on the cheap for an extended research trip into Germany, you can find sublets so easy on there. Uh, anyway, so I was in this predominantly immigrant neighborhood. There's a lot of people from Africa, a lot of Albanian folks, a lot of Turkish folks. So you had this kind of like immigrant community that I was living in. And then that was right next to the coking plant. 
And then that was right next to this, this sort of like Siemens engineering division. That was right next to the largest brothel in Germany. So you would get all of these trucks parked and lined up around and through the neighborhood. The neighborhood itself was quite nice. People were great. And then you'd walk to work up through this. And you'd run the gauntlet. You come through the neighborhood. You see everybody say hi. You go up past this row of truckers who were parked up like the, the overnight long haul guys who had been dropping off coke for the, for the power facility or who, ha who were, I don't know, overnighting let's say at the facilities in the area at the same time that all the engineers were arriving for work in the morning and you'd go past you'd turn around the corner to walk down to the archive you'd go past all of the you'd go past the actual building where the brothel was you'd see all these little bars with the the, the desperados and uh not the desperados the banditos banditos was the motorcycle club uh, that seems to have their fingers in a lot of pies in the area. Uh, this is one of the illegal motorcycle gangs. But anyway, so you go past, you go through all this, and then you'd end up on the other side, and you'd be in this kind of restored project area with a bunch of government buildings and converted purpose, uh, converted purpose buildings from the old industry days that are now sort of official buildings. So you've got, I think, there's some type of regional headquarters for some multinational, and you got the archive, and you got, you've got a North Rhine-Westphalian State Building. You've got like I think it's the the main police station for the state there as well. Either way, so you you could move through just the whole range of everything uh, of kind of like what the modern Rhineland is right now. Uh, in on the walk to work, it was quite interesting. Now, if you turn the other direction after work, you could go for this amazing run out along the Rhine, and there was actually one of the old flak towers that had been built. These are like concrete towers that were uh, were constructed all over Germany so that these weren't the Nazi fortress of doom type ones that were built in Berlin. These were smaller regional ones that were intended to fire over to, to get kind of like a sight line over all the smokestacks and other things that you didn't want to shoot with your anti-aircraft artillery in the Rhineland to, to protect the major production facilities from all the bombing raids that would come in. So what's happened to it now is that it's actually a climbing wall and so you can go, you can join this climbing association, you get a key to the building, you can go into the building, you just can climb the interior of an old flak tower on your weekends, right? So enough about the surroundings. It is a, it is a nice part of the world and it's an interesting place and definitely a real slice of life if you, uh, if you pay attention to your surroundings and go exploring in the communities. Now, the archive itself is actually one of the more enjoyable ones to work in that I've been in in Germany. I, the people there are great. Doctors Bastian Gilner and Sabina Eibels have a both been instrumental in my research on the Gestapo. They run searches for me. They took a real interest in what I was doing. They pointed me towards different uh, different things that I could possibly turn up. They've they've really been helpful. And that's not always the case when you work in an archive. A lot of times you'll end up with somebody who, you know, if they'll process the requests that you're you're doing, but that what's called the betroya relationship, where somebody's supposed to take on your research question and try and guide you toward the the right types of sources and let you know about things that may be related to your research question that aren't in your initial uh, your initial dragnet uh, and and request for files. That isn't always the case. At a lot of the a lot of the really big or a lot of the really small archives, you will end up with somebody who will just you know you you hand them the piece of paper, they'll bring you what you want, and then that's it. But my experience in uh, 
the North Rhine-Westphalian State Archive has always been that people have, have always gone that little extra mile to really make sure that you're getting access to the right stuff. I mean, you know, I was doing the extra work, but then they, they were the ones who helped me solve the problems when I said I have this information and I'm trying to figure this out. So they, they've been really great there. One of my best friends, Christian Graup, worked there in restoration and in the reading room. So it was always nice to share, share the various research problems and, and talk through what it was, whatever I happened to be working on. So I have to say it has been an absolute pl pleasure. After all, it was often down to him that the introductions would be made and that uh, my questions would get passed off to the right person who would be hiding in the inner workings of the archive somewhere. So I, I really, I owe him a lot. Part of the reason that the Rhineland has become a, a home away from home is, is just getting to know all the great people there. But it's also the archive that you want to be working in if you're looking at anything to do with Nazism in the Rhineland. So if you want to do anything related to policing or justice, both under the Nazis or in the post-war era, this is the big collection of files that you need to look, look at. So the archive is probably best known for being the home of the Dusseldorf collection. That is the main repository of Gestapo case files for the Dusseldorf regional headquarters. So that includes all of the outposts that were in Essen, Wuppertal. Uh, oh man, can I list them all? There's 13 of them. Essen, Wuppertal, Mulheim. No, I can't. <laughs> anyway, so uh, there are, you get this view of policing for the entire area. So all of that's there. There are actually 72,000 files categorized into over 70 different categories. The biggest ones contain around four or 5,000. That would be uh, communism, opposition, malicious gossip, Jewish policy. And then there are significant outcroppings in things like church policy toward the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church. Uh, surprisingly, another really big group is policing of actual members of Nazi associations. So uh, people who were, I don't know if that's from uh, attempts by the Underground Communist Party to infiltrate mass organizations. I haven't really had an opportunity to dig through that big collection, but I'm, I'm curious to know why there are so many files on Nazi Party members, what that has to do with, whether they're background checks or whatever. But uh, anyway, yeah, so you have all of these different files organized in all these different categories that you can then go into that are then subcategorized into different types of offenses. So if you look at the law against malicious gossip, which is where I've done a lot of my work, where uh, it's, it's what criminalized criticism in Nazi Germany, you could be thrown into jail for criticizing Hitler or, or criticizing government policy over something or saying that Germany was going to lose the war. If you go into that category, then there, it's it's broken down into actually the nature of the offense. So you'll have an entire subcategory of cases that are related to statements about Hitler or defeatist statements or subversive statements. And so you can kind of work through and look at the different character of the different types of offenses. You can break things down. You can actually get a real look at what political policing in Germany in an entire region looked like. So this collection has been exploited by a lot of people to look at, uh, you know, micro studies of a particular city over a particular period of time. Uh, Robert Galately has done a lot of work on denunciation. He's the one who really opened up the discussion around the Gestapo again in the early 90s with his book, The Gestapo in German Society. So he's, he's worked with those files. Uh, his, his work originally started, there's only three collections of these Gestapo files. One of them's in Würzburg, one of them's in Speer, and then one of them is here. Now, 
there was talk for a while circulating. There's another collection in Poland. Finally tracked that one down uh, through the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. But that looks to actually concern a bunch of Polish worker and uh, and Jewish case files for people who were uh, who were somehow associated with government district Dusseldorf and may have had the dossiers routed through um, the International Persons Tracing Services after the Second World War back to the their country of origin. So I think that may actually account for a significant portion of the missing 30% of files. The overall collection in Dusseldorf is, is estimated at 70% complete. But regardless, there, uh, there's plenty that you can do to look at these sort of local, local level studies, or you can break it down by specific case studies. Uh, Reinhard Mann did a, a study of, of Dusseldorf itself and resistance movements on, up until his untimely death. And Eric Johnson has done work on the Krefeld Gestapo in his book, Nazi Terror. Yeah, so there's sort of all this work that's been done looking at these case files, but there's still a lot more lot more to be done in terms of how the boundaries were drawn between, say, what constituted conspiracy to commit high treason and when the Gestapo stopped prosecuting communists for treason and started prosecuting them under lesser laws. Like the, the flexibility that was involved in Gestapo enforcement means that there needs to be a lot more work done to really understand where the parameters are and how it changes over time. And, uh, and particularly what the dynamics are like among particular subgroups of Germans. Right now, what we've got is a lot of big generalization about what Gestapo policy was based on activity with target minorities. It's part of what my book is dealing with. But the, the research really needs to be rounded out to look at enforcement practices with communists, enforcement practices with socialists, enforcement practices with, uh, with the Catholic Church, especially use of informants specifically. Like there needs to be a lot of done to look, a lot of work done to look at how informants appear in the case files and how exactly they're used on a large scale. Like there are a lot of different ways that you could slice up that collection. There's at least, I can think of, um, you know, several. I could think of several books that still need to be written using this collection before we've even really come to grips with kind of the outline of what's going on there. Right now, we have sort of uh, the the first hints of what the big outgroupings are that we should be paying closer attention to to kind of understand what the dynamics are. And so, uh, hopefully, I'll be I'll be taking a step along those lines, but uh, myself. But much more remains to be done. So. This is actually a closed collection, so you need special permission to access it. Uh, this is because they're they're police records, right? These aren't just, uh, you know, regardless of the fact that they were created by the Nazi regime, regardless of the fact that they, in many cases, cover quote-unquote crimes that can hardly be considered a crime, right? Like just the fact that you're Jewish or that you voice an opinion and that that opinion has been criminalized. Uh, or, you know, you're part of a political association that has been banned. These files still contain a lot of intimate personal information about the individual suspects. And that is also why they're a really good source to study the relationship between state and society in Nazi Germany. Because you can look at how the Gestapo is viewing different groups of people, but also how their practices change depending on all these different markers, sociological markers about like age, income, what type of what types of social activities they're involved in, whether they're parts of any associations, what newspapers they subscribe to, you know, 
what, what social economic background they come from, what political background they come from, what, what ethnic background they come from, uh, whether or not they've been identified as how, you know, whether they have a criminal history, all of these things play into this stuff, right? So, uh, and obviously, once you've got all that information on a person, that's not something that you necessarily want to have shared with the rest of the world. So they are covered under the uh, privacy of information laws in Germany. That doesn't mean that you can't access them, but you do have to register for a special permission, a, a Sondergenehmigung that outlines your research program. Very basic. It's it's not difficult to gain access to, but it does bind you to not sharing the personal information of these people without anonymizing it first and without without actually sharing it in a way that could be connected to them. Now, this will be in effect for a little while longer before the collection is truly open because there are still there's still a few people left that were born within within the limits. Like I you've got a few people who were adolescents who were picked up at the very end of the regime in like 1943 and 1944, uh, like the, the kind of the youth gang groups or people who were, were dressed up in, in uniform that they shouldn't have for an association that they weren't a member for. I've seen cases like that or, uh, you know, another really interesting case with a young girl who was writing these, uh, these love letters to a British bomber pilot mentioned that on the other episode with, uh, uh, but anyway, I, I really got to do something with that story anyway. So very young people who were picked up toward the end of the regime are just squeaking in at the very edge of where the collection can't be completely open because they're still not, not enough time has passed for, I think it's 70 years. I'd have to go and read the laws again, but anyway, the, it, it, not enough time has passed for their records to be considered uh, uh, open and not, you know, like they're either dead or it happened so long ago that it's no longer of interest or whatever. So in the meantime, that means that you still need to actually apply for special permission to go in to the records. And it also means that you can't take a camera with you to take pictures. If you want the files, you either need to pay for a reproduction and they will try and discourage you from making that reproduction in full. They don't want full files taken out. They might let you take part of it, but they don't want to give you the full file. So if you do want the full file so that you can do an actual analysis of this stuff that takes time and, and does an actual qualitative analysis or quantitative breakdown, make sure that you're budgeting the time to actually sit down and transcribe these things. And it takes forever. Having collected 308 of the damn things, I know. Uh, that is, in fact, where all of my research time and budget went to is just buying the time to sit down and type this stuff out. So if there was one thing that I would suggest to change in, it would be that. But it's, uh, it's something that you should factor into your research plans if you're going to work with that collection. The justice side of things can also be covered through this particular archive. If you're doing the work on regional policing, you can also do all of the regional court records for the area. As the state archive, you have access to the Oberlandesgericht, the, uh, the senior, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the English equivalent in the Commonwealth or the American system would be, but the, uh, basically the state Supreme Court for the area, which handled all the treason cases against communists. It was located at Ham. Their records are available here. There's also all the records for the special courts that were set up by the Nazis to look at uh, violations under the decree for protection of people and state that ended up encompassing a lot of a lot of the opinion offenses that were established later on, 
would go through the special special courts. So uh, if you if you're interested in policing opinion or policing of the economy or the political side of the justice system under the Nazis, the special court records are here too. And if you're doing any work with the Gestapo, you should also be looking at the these special court files because especially after 1937, there's actually direct involvement between the two in a number of liaisons the Gestapo have on the staff of the state prosecutor's office in the area. So it's really, it becomes kind of an, an incorporated system. But there's, again, a lot of work to be done with how certain sentencing, sentencing decisions are made, what role the, the actual special courts start to play in the system. A lot of this stuff is coming out in German or has been conducted as sort of local studies that have, have broken down kind of the chain of how particular offenses pass through, pass through the political police into, into the special court system. But what's still lacking is an understanding of the actual decision-making process for a lot of these things. The, the focus tends to be on uh, a few anecdotes, a few, uh, a, a breakdown of what policy says and uh, and that's sort of and Bob's your uncle, but there's still a lot more work that could you could, because people are trying to map the whole system, and we're just now finally getting the contours of how things work at a regional level. A lot of the earlier work has been looking at national level policy, so exploitation of these regional archives to kind of look at the dynamics of things is is really uh, making a lot of headway. And there's if you're starting to work in this area, there's a ton of literature that you have to read now in German that uh, to to kind of look at things unless you're keeping it at a at a strictly regional level but more remains to be done if you're going to do your own connections of how dynamics play out in a particular office or a particular offense is handled or something like that so uh, again there's different ways that you can cut things up if you're tracing tracing the individual parts of the system because we're not at a point yet where we can step back and and write a whole synthesis of this stuff uh the only big sort of like uh, view from 20,000 feet work that exists looks at national policy debates and interaction between the departments themselves. We're just now understanding how policy was translated into practice at the local level and the regional level. And uh, once that work is done, we can step back again and we can kind of write another synthesis. And that's, we're, we're moving towards that. We're not there yet. So uh, take a, take, be part of, there's, there's, Plenty to be done in the special court records. There is something you should know, though, if you are working with the special court records, that the uh, for this particular area, the main prosecutor's office in Dusseldorf was hit by a bombing in 1943, and there was significant loss of files as a result. So you can't treat this collection as something that could be used for statistical analysis of the whole system. But what you can do is definitely find good outcroppings of particular offenses that are either taken to trial or not taken to trial. And um, yeah, so it's still useful in that respect. And in any case, interesting to because you, what you can do is you can work on the Gestapo files. You can pick out individuals and uh, or actually what's usually easier is to go to the special court records and pick out some individual cases and then reverse engineer them back into the Gestapo files. Now that completely uh, ruins your sample methodology because the Gestapo are, are doing a whole lot of holding things back from the special courts. 
but it does let you trace cases that are taken to completion from one part of the system into the next. So yeah, take a look at it, see what you find. There's plenty to see. Court records are also subject to permissions for the same reasons, same ways. So uh, be aware that you are going to need to invest the time and effort to access them as well and transcribe them if you, if you want to take away a large sample or a lot of information from a specific file. The station records for police in the area are also on file here. These are open collections because they're an official institution. So you can look at the surviving records for all of the Gestapo stations inside of Government District Dusseldorf, as well as the surviving records for Aachen and Cologne. Eventually, the reason for that is that later on, Aachen and Cologne were incorporated into the, uh, or were subordinated to Government District Dusseldorf. It's not clear how direct the command relationship was between those stations or whether Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf just served as the routing station for all of the uh, all of the directives from Berlin. From what I've read from the files in Cologne and Aachen, they seem to retain a, a high degree of autonomy. The point is, though, that the records that were captured in Cologne were significantly more intact because that station was overrun by the Americans as they were moving towards the encirclement of the Rhineware pocket, whereas the stations within uh, within Government District Dusseldorf were part of the pocket in to a large degree, and so significantly more of their records were destroyed. You have to do a lot of patchwork kind of stitching together of a, of a kind of like mosaic building whenever you're doing policy work with documents. But Cologne has a lot of really good stuff for the end phase, kind of that last nine month period uh, before the collapse of the regime. If you if you want to get into those questions, it's really worth it to look at the, the Cologne office records. They actually have reports for that time period. There's also the records of the inspector of security police and the higher SS police leader for the Western for Defense District 6. So I, I didn't find a whole lot of stuff in the inspector of security police's records, but the higher SS police leader records did have some interesting documents to look through if you're, again, interested in that, that end phase period, the last nine months. Um, it could also just be that I was blind because there wasn't a lot to deal with the policing of Germans uh, so much as counterespionage and, uh, and and foreign workers. Chris might be the one to ask about what you can find in those particular collections. I just remember that when I went through them, I didn't find a lot of stuff that had to do with the policing of, uh, of, of the social majority. And so did not pay as close attention to them as I did to some other stuff where there was a lot more about how average Germans were being policed. But uh, regardless, those files are there and important if you're looking to reconstruct a regional picture of all the different authorities that are involved in policing in the area. I know I keep jumping back and forth between court records and police records here, but the district court records are also available for, again, the entire government district of Dusseldorf. So these are these are the local courts that would be feeding up into more superior courts and they're interesting because a lot of the a lot of very local level decisions summary rulings things like this that don't make it into the special courts uh, are, are occurring at the level of the district court particularly in the early days of the regime before the gestapo has established control over the flow of all 
political offenses through them into the court system. So prior to kind of this 1937, 1936 shift after Himmler becomes chief of German police, a lot of other state authorities, whether it's um, uh, the mayor's as acting police authority or the rural gendarmerie or the actual uniformed police services, are taking a lot of small time offenses for disturbing the peace directly to the district courts. Now, a lot of stuff was described as disturbing the peace under the Nazis. So you get a whole range of different types of behaviors that are being, uh, are being controlled through local level courts that haven't received as much attention as the, the special court system because the special court system is what eventually evolves into becoming the, the center of social control in Nazi Germany. That's where all of the political offenses end up going through these kind of summary solution, uh, summary courts where you can't appeal and they're expedited processes and there's a whole bunch of special rules about not being able to question evidence and things like that. So the district courts from what I've seen, get ignored a lot because everybody's jumping ahead to the special court system and the people's court, the national kind of Supreme Court that is established at the head of the special court system. So there's a lot of work that could be done there, particularly in looking at how responsibilities between the district courts and the special courts are negotiated and the practical questions about where authorities are routing different types of behaviors and who's who is taking certain types of behaviors to trial in the early years. It means a lot of stuff that is going to be showing up in district court files is going to be missing from special court files or missing from Gestapo files or missing from police records that just weren't kept on them because, you know, buddy said something, they take them to the district court the next day, you know, an arrest warrant is issued or not. And so there's a whole lot to be explored there. There is one really good article that has looked at how opinion was policed in the early days, specifically the crackdown on communists. Uh, one sec. Okay, so it's an article by Günther Schmitz in Für Führer, Volk und Vaterland. Hamburger Justiz im Nationalsozialismus is published in 1992. So that is the only article that I've come across that really does good work about how uh, about the overlap with the Amtsgericht in the early days. And I think there's a lot more to be discovered about the development of the justice system and specifically how political offenses are routed through it. And uh, you could trace you can really trace at, at a functional level at what point the police start asserting control over the entire system. Uh, regardless, they're there. They're worth checking out, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty more that you could find out uh, uh, without without knowing. Because like, there's a whole separate set of offenses, like disturbing the peace, kind of expanded at this time. They also use the the libel laws to pursue a lot of uh, opinion offenses at a local level before more formal prosecution under the law against malicious gossip is established in December 1934. So the the early the early days of the Nazi regime, we, we spent a lot of time looking at the concentration camp system for 1933 to 1934. My gut instinct from what I've seen is that there's a lot more to be said about the role of district courts at a local level as well. 
Now, moving into post-war justice, there's two big outcroppings of files or collections, really, that you should be looking at. The first is all of the different court cases that were brought against former Nazis in this region. Now, in Cologne, the central, uh, central office for national socialist violent crimes, Cologne had a special prosecutor set up after the war specifically to deal with national socialist crimes against humanity and violent crimes that occurred under national socialism by state actors or party actors. So you can check out all of their records in the North Rhine-Westphalia State Archive, and there are a lot of them. Now, because they were running all of the prosecution cases in Western Germany to pursue former Nazi perpetrators, there are also a lot of court cases for this region especially that deal with former members of the Gestapo, uh, violent crimes against uh, former communists like torture, uh, detention, beatings, things like this. And all this stuff remains obscured within Gestapo files or is only alluded to between the lines and policy documents. So a lot of the access to the very early days of Nazism and the very last days of Nazism, so the 33 to 34 and then the 44 to 45 periods, you can only get to through post-war court records where people were brought up for, for violence after the fact during this revolutionary period. Uh, there are some really famous cases here, the Brauweiler case, which was a special commando that was set up to investigate resistance networks or hints of resistance networks among former communists and uh, foreign labor that were used as slave labor at this point in the regime during the last two years. So their trial is there. The, uh, the Brauweiler case is there. There are cases that involve the former heads of the Gestapo. There are preliminary investigations. So there's a basically a major investigation conducted for each of the the large stations for um what is it accessory to murder accessory to murder for the holocaust that are conducted in the early uh, throughout the 60s so these are interesting sources because they go through and they start interviewing all of the former officers. They start interviewing all of their old stenographers and secretaries, like the people who know where the bodies are buried. Their interviews come up on this. And then the by that are contained in these files often include press clippings. So you can begin to go through the public reception of the court cases and how the, the kind of the post-war narratives of collective responsibility or who was selected from the population or certain groups to bear responsibility for the wider offenses of the Nazi regime and the popular dictatorship uh, are, are, are sort of negotiated at a public level. So it, they're really interesting sources to work with you get to go through the discussion of all of the former victims and you get to see the testimony that uh, about what Gestapo practices were in certain situations because there are also large reams of, of character witness that Gestapo members call to, to protect themselves. So these cases are very interesting. There are a lot of them. And they're, they're for generally the same range of kind of abusive office or, or mistreatment, uh, you know, like physical abuse of somebody who was in state custody or something like this. But there are also a few, the, the few cases of uh, hard documentation and witness testimony about mass executions during the end phase are also 
found in these court cases. So if you're looking at getting information about the end phase, which is a really tough period to access and, and, and get eyes on, right? Because that's when, that's when state authorities stopped keeping regular policy documents, stopped keeping regular files and sort of moved over, if at all, uh, if they were, if the record survived at all to keeping these kind of weekly reports that that really quickly summarize what was happening and don't offer you much understanding of what their routine practices were you get an inside image of people who were kind of disgusted by their colleagues or are throwing somebody else under the bus to make themselves look better right so you you get you get more of an insight into what was happening at a very chaotic moment in the, in the collapse of the regime that you otherwise aren't afforded uh, insight into by the rest of the policy documents that exist for this period. Now, apart from the court records themselves, there are also the denazification files. These, I think, are the next big thing in research. I, I think they've been totally overlooked, and I think there is so much that you can do with them. This This is the next mass collection of files that people need to be looking at if they want to understand how really post-war justice is negotiated. There is a, there's some literature from the 70s and the 80s. More of it kind of looks like it had an uptick in the, the mid-thousands and again sort of in the last five years. But not a lot of work has been done on the actual denazification files and there's a lot of information in some of them. Now, after the war in 1946, the military governments that were set up in the different areas set up a denazification process to try and figure out who should be allowed back into positions of authority, who could receive, say, their official pension for service to the state as a civil servant, right? Like the Gestapo officers technically had pensions, right? Are you going to give a Gestapo officer a pension after they've been engaged in the Holocaust, right? Who deserves from the police to get a pension and who deserves to be sent to jail? So a lot of local panels were set up to begin to process all of the different people who had been the members of Nazi organizations or civil servants under the Nazis. So there is so much to be discovered in these files about how former Nazis portrayed themselves to panels of Germans in the post-war era and how they explained and justified their actions. It's also, it's also going to be a really interesting source set for coming to understand how certain parts of the Nazi party apparatus came to be seen as normal in the post-war era while others remained uh, sort of surrounded by a criminal aura or how former political functionaries managed to justify their participation. How does a group, uh, does the district party office get away with what they did, their role in the system? Is it is it seen as criminal? Is it something that needs to be, you know, removed from society or are they okay, right? Like there are all of these questions about how all these different groups were either reincorporated into society or singled out to kind of bear responsibility for the guilt of uh, of of the regime's crimes, you know that negotiation process is playing out in each of these individual denazification files. And it's also a great way to explore the identity and the changing identity of former Nazis and how they begin to distance themselves from the regime. How the kind of code of silence of the 1950s is built up through 
these these public negotiations. And there is a lot of high drama in these files. A lot of the hearings would play out in in public spaces where former victims uh, or people who had been somehow disadvantaged or exploited by a former Nazi would come and appear and confront their their former persecutor, right? The Association for the Victims of National Socialist Violence actually would run public campaigns in their newspapers publicizing who was coming up before a denazification panel, when it was going to be held. If you have anything to say about this person, you need to come to this hearing and you need to let the let the official record show what happened. So it's a completely different part of the post-war justice system that from what I've been able to look at, and again, this is just something that I'm just beginning to look at. I, I stumbled into these files by tracing the names of former Gestapo officers in, in the archive, um, they're, and they're just now being digitized on, on mass. There's a lot in there that can be looked at, if even if it's just reconstructing a generational collective biography of what types of, of, of professional networks brought certain people into certain parts of the uh, of Nazi organizations, or uh, how how these people changed their attitudes toward their participation in the Nazi regime, or how the public discussion surrounded surrounding certain organizations took shape or how the people who were the people on the panels who were responsible for making the decisions about how the public memory of Nazism would be shaped. All of this stuff can be kind of extracted from these files. So I, I think they're a particularly rich source that you're going to be uh, if, you, if you actually are the type of person to read the footnotes and bibliographies of, of history books, we'll be seeing a lot more of in, in years to come. Well, with that, I, I was intending to cover two or three different archives. I, I've just managed to get through Duisburg, and we're already up to close to an hour. So I will leave it there. And uh, if this is something of interest, I will I will bring up. And uh, it's, it's quite easy for me to talk off the cuff about all the cool things that I've seen in all the different archives I've been in. So next time we can do the, uh, the Federal Archive in Berlin-Lichterfeld. And there's also the, uh, the Prussian Cultural Holdings, which have a lot of great print material uh, if, if you're interested in newspapers and public discussion and public discourse under Nazism. Anyway. With that, I would like to thank you for your patience and for sticking with us and joining us for another episode of the Third Reich History Podcast. Regular programming will resume at some point. In the meantime, uh, you can look forward to more episodes like this while uh, Chris and I are focused on getting that writing done while we still can. I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>